Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics so that defenders can pick and choose what they want to listen to without having to commit to an hour-long podcast with guests and entertaining banter. This not only saves you time, but also relieves me of the pressure of trying to be entertaining. This podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial insofar as the ideas are those of the presenters and do not represent the official views of the Air Force or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is, of course, an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interests of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. I am Daryl Johnson of the Air Force's Defense Council Assistance Program, and it's 5 o'clock here in the National Capital Region. Please join me as I pour myself a drink to relax, sit down, and share some thoughts on defensive litigation and advocacy. For this week's update on the law, we're going to discuss the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals' only published case so far this year in 2021. United States v. Lepore. After that, we'll turn to the rule of completeness. I'm very curious as to how the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals decides when to publish a case and when it decides to take a case in bonk. It did both in the case of the United States v. Lepore, which it decided on 16 December 2021. The issue in the case was whether the court-martial order erroneously indicates that the appellant's conviction triggered the firearms prohibition under 18 U.S.C. 922G. The Air Force Court concluded that the issue was a collateral matter and is beyond the scope of its authority under Article 66, and therefore it denied any relief. So here we have an en banc Air Force opinion that decides it doesn't have the authority to decide. Doesn't sound all that helpful or important. In fact, in at least one way, I believe the opinion is actually unhelpful because it purports to state what the law is, but then declines to conduct any analysis of whether that law is a valid exercise of authority under the Constitution or the enabling statute. Before I get into all that, however, I want to discuss the opinion's practical implications for defense litigators. First, the case drives home the importance of advising your client about the collateral consequences of a court-martial conviction and your extremely limited ability to do anything about those consequences. In the Lepore case, it was the firearms prohibition, which is a notice provided to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System indicating that your client is prohibited from possessing a firearm for one year. Of course, we have some great templates on SharePoint to help you advise your clients on collateral consequences, so please start with those and keep them current. The second practical implication from Lepore is that the case reminds counsel that when you get a chance to look at the statement of trial results, whether it's in the draft form before trial or when a government representative drops off the required copy after trial, read it and review it. This is your chance to flag a potential error and get it corrected for your client without your client having to go to a federal court outside of the military appeals process to try and get it fixed. If you miss it, that statement of trial results is likely going to be carried over into the entry of judgment, and then it may be a long road for your client to try and get it fixed. A road that may require them to go to the civil courts and spend some of their own money. Returning to why I believe the Embank opinion is problematic requires discussing the substantive issue that the Air Force Court refused to reach. 
Despite finding that it had no jurisdiction over the legal issues raised by the appellant, the court included in the law section of its opinion both the language from the statute, which is, as I said, 18 U.S.C. section 922G, and it quoted as law an excerpt from Air Force Instruction 51201, which is now Department of the Air Force Instruction 51201. The statute itself makes it unlawful for those who are, quote, an unlawful user, end of quote, of a controlled substance to possess firearms. The statute does not define what amounts to an unlawful user, but 51201 states that, quote, conviction or non-judicial punishment for use or possession within the last year of a controlled substance, end of quote triggers the firearm prohibition of Section 922G. So my issue is, if the Air Force Court was not going to consider the lawfulness of the firearm prohibition as applied to the appellant, it should not have purported to state what that law is. Of course, it also included in its law section the language from Article 66 at the time, which addresses the powers of the Air Force Court, and that was really all they needed to resolve the case because the court held that because firearm registration was not part of the findings and sentence of the court-martial, the Air Force Court had no authority to review whether it was lawful or appropriate. So why quote the AFI as if it's an accurate statement of the law? That just creates confusion. As you might have guessed, it is my strong opinion that 51201's definition of an unlawful user is itself unlawful, and, in fact, it is unconstitutional. There are two related constitutional problems with the Air Force's implementation of the firearm prohibition set out in 18 U.S.C. 922G. First, it imports the definition of unlawful user adopted by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, which has been deemed unconstitutional by every federal court to address the issue. One such court was the Eighth Circuit, which recognized that the statutory term unlawful user ran the risk of being unconstitutionally vague absent, quote, a judicially created temporal nexus between gun possession and regular drug use, end of quote. That was in United States v. Turnbull, 349 F. 3rd, 558, back in 2003. Note that the drug use must be regular. A one-time use of an illegal drug would not render a person ineligible to possess a firearm. Another federal case noted that, quote, Every circuit to have considered the question has demanded that the habitual abuse be contemporaneous with the gun possession. That's United States v. Yancey, 621 F. 3rd, 681, 7th Circuit in 2010. And that case cited cases from the 3rd, 8th, and 9th Circuits. Therefore, not only must the illegal drug use be pervasive, it must also be contemporaneous with the gun possession. The Air Force, meanwhile, deems someone an unlawful user of illegal drugs based on a positive urinalysis alone, based on mere possession with no evidence of use, based on a finding of guilt at any type of court-martial, or NJP, or even based on an administrative discharge for drug abuse, regardless of when the illegal drug use actually occurred or whether the use was pervasive. Additionally, the Air Force treats the conviction itself as an additional triggering event. The firearm prohibition for an unlawful user, as I mentioned before, is not permanent, but rather is supposed to expire after one year. But one year from what? According to the Air Force, one year from the finding of guilt, even if the actual drug use was two years prior to the court-martial. 
All of these fly in the face of the temporal nexus requirement between gun possession and drug abuse, as well as the requirement that the drug abuse be pervasive. Which brings me to the second constitutional problem. As you know, possession of a firearm is a constitutional right. So a governmental restriction on that right must be more than just rational. It must demonstrate a strong showing that the firearm prohibition based on historic intermittent drug use is substantially related to an important government objective. That's from Yancey. The Seventh Circuit in Yancey found the firearm restriction in 922G passed the strong showing requirement, but only where it limited the provision to habitual drug use contemporaneous with the possession of the firearm. Indeed, in finding the firearm prohibition constitutional, the Seventh Circuit pointed out that an unlawful drug user, quote, could regain his right to possess a firearm simply by ending his drug abuse, end of quote. If 922G were as broad as the Air Force applies it, the government would not be able to establish a rational relationship, let alone demonstrate a strong showing that denying a person their constitutional right to possess a firearm based on limited or historic illegal drug use is substantially related to the government's legitimate objective of keeping guns away from current habitual drug abusers. So, in sum, the appellant was likely correct in asserting that the government erred when it indicated that his conviction for using illegal drugs two years previously triggered the firearm prohibition in 18 U.S.C. 922G. Regardless, the Air Force reasonably found, the Air Force Court reasonably found, that, that that issue was collateral and outside of its limited jurisdiction. So Mr. Lepore must seek a remedy in civil court. Which brings me to my final point on this issue, and that is, in addition to advising your clients about the one-year firearm prohibition, you should also advise them that under 18 U.S.C. 925 capital A, attorney's fees are available for anyone who successfully sues the government to correct an unlawful user label. So, your client may want to file an action in federal district court if they currently possess or desire to possess a firearm within the next year and their drug use was not pervasive and they are no longer abusing illegal drugs. Okay, enough about drugs. Let's turn to this episode's advocacy focus and talk about the rule of completeness. And in the military, I should say the rules of completeness, because the MREs provide two different rules for, of completeness, one that mirrors the federal rules of evidence, 106, and the other that is unique to military practice and is available only to the defense because it only applies to statements by an accused, and that is military rule of evidence 304H. Both rules are geared towards achieving a fair trial by allowing one party to put the evidence introduced by the other party in its proper context by introducing what the other side left out. Before we get into the application of the rule itself, we should talk about how you can prepare for the rule uh, to recognize when it might come into play through your pretrial preparation. There are two things that you want to make sure you have done prior to trial. First, you need to know who said what in your case meaning you should have some kind of organization system that puts the entirety of each potential witness's statements at your fingertips. This is similar to how you prepare for identifying and locating prior inconsistent statements, so this garden can produce more than one type of fruit. When video recorded statements are in play, you will want as close to a verbatim transcript as possible, with time hacks no more than two minutes apart, so that you can pinpoint what was said, when it was said, and in what context. Second, for defense counsel, 
there is some additional legwork that you need to do based on the prosecution's notices under Military Rule of Evidence 304D. As a reminder, MRE 304D requires the government to provide the defense with the contents of all statements made by your client that the government intends to use at trial. So let's say you get a notice and the prosecution says it intends to introduce the video-recorded law enforcement interview of your client. The government may have made a general statement like, statements made to investigators, or all admissions made to investigators, or what have you. But when that happens, you should be pinging the prosecution to identify precisely which portions of the video they intend to offer, because although you may not have any objections related to the voluntariness of that statement, the specifics will help you decide whether or not anything is being offered out of context, and in turn, tee up any completeness arguments that you might have. So that's some of your pretrial prep related to the rule of completeness. Let's turn to walking through the application of the rule at trial. We can start by focusing on statements made by your client. If part of an accused's alleged admission or confession is offered by the prosecution, Rule 304H states that the defense, quote, may offer the remaining portions of the statement, end of quote, which sounds like the defense is free to pick and choose any portions of the client's statement, right? Well, it's not as good as it sounds because CAF has limited those remaining portions of the statement to only those that are part of the conversation or admission or otherwise is explanatory of or in any way relevant to the confession or admission. That's from United States v. Rodriguez, 56MJ336. So it's still pretty broad, but the focus is on whether the other portions of the statement explains or relates to what the prosecution has offered, because the rule is meant to put things in context. It's not just to provide a backdoor to otherwise inadmissible evidence. It's really a rule about fairness. Under 304H, the most common way of putting in the remaining portions of the client's oral statement is through cross-examination. For instance, Imagine a named victim of a sexual assault has testified on direct that your client apologized to her regarding the sexual assault. Your cross-examination may look something like this. You testified earlier about what Airman Smith said about that night. You testified that he apologized to you. He said he was sorry. But there was more to what he told you. Airman Smith told you the reason He felt sorry and was apologizing. He told you he was sorry because he had misunderstood. He told you he felt sorry because he thought you had consented when, as you said, you did not. If you believe the witness will be fair, you could also ask those questions more open-ended to simply ask what your client's exact words were or what he told her at the time in question, but that is risky because it does cede control to the witness. Keep in mind that you are building these questions based on your pretrial prep, meaning that you have a statement from this witness where she stated all the things that your client told her. Like any cross-examination, the witness may not be forthcoming with the more favorable portions of your client's statements, so you should be prepared to refresh the witness's recollection, since you will likely want the remainder of your client's statement in as substantive evidence. But you may also want to impeach using a prior inconsistent statement if you would rather just undermine the credibility of the alleged admission. One thing that is critical in the analysis is asking whether the statement you are offering is, quote, part of the original confession or admission or a separate transaction or course of action. That's the operative language from United States v. Rodriguez. The analysis is not as simple as, was it said at the same time as the portion offered by the government? 
because even if the remaining portion offered by the defense was given as a separate statement, the client's statement could still be admissible if it puts the admitted statement into context. So that is a little bit confusing, so let's use an example. Consider in the previous example, if the client had had a series of conversations with the named victim, and each time he told her that he was sorry because he believed she had consented, but in their last conversation, he just said he was sorry and nothing else. You would want to argue that the earlier conversations are necessary because it makes clear what exactly he meant, even though he didn't clarify it in that final apology. For instance, in United States v. Foise, 69MJ562, which is a case from the Navy Marine Court of Criminal Appeals, the accused had been called in and provided investigators with a detailed statement regarding the events that led to the alleged sexual assault. Two months later, he was called back in to provide additional details, and he again complied. His second statement was labeled a supplemental statement, and he did not include all the prior detail, but instead, as directed, focused just on the sexual act at issue. At trial, the government admitted the second supplemental statement, but without the initial statement, which had provided all the details leading up to the sexual act that spoke to consent or reasonable mistake of fact as to consent. The defense sought admission of the prior statement under the rule of completeness, but the military judge didn't allow it because, apparently, the military judge thought context is limited to making the statement sensible. He felt that because he could understand what was said in the supplemental statement without the prior statement, it was not required by the rule of completeness. The Navy Marine Court pointed out that the rule was created to prevent exactly what had occurred. That is, the government entering the portion of a statement that sounds incriminating while excluding the context that significantly diminishes the incriminating nature of the admission. Now, before invoking the rule of completeness, defense counsel need to consider that invoking the rule under 304H can put your client's credibility at issue and open the door to character evidence regarding your client's veracity. That comes from United States v. Goldwire, 55 MJ 139. If you are worried about a bunch of adverse character witnesses lined up by the prosecution that you are trying to keep out, or if you've perhaps advised your client not to testify specifically to avoid that sort of character evidence coming into play, you're going to want to keep that in mind. So what we've been discussing so far has focused mostly on MRE 304H. So now let's turn to MRE 106. MRE 106 is both broader and narrower than MRE 304H. It's more narrow in that it only applies to written or recorded statements, so it does not apply to oral statements. And it is more broad in that it is not limited to admissions or confessions of the accused. It applies to any written or recorded statement made by any person. So if either the prosecution or the defense introduces all or part of a written or recorded statement, the opposing party may require at that time the introduction of any other part of that writing or recording or another writing or recorded statement that in fairness ought to be considered alongside with what was put into evidence. So there are two things that stand out about this rule. The first is the ability to force the timing of admitting the writing or recording. The rule specifically empowers the opposing party to force the party who introduced part of that writing or recording to immediately introduce the other parts so that the evidence can be considered together. That can be a pretty powerful move. Imagine the government using an OSI agent to introduce a portion of a pretext phone call to admit the part in the recording where your client admits the sexual acts occurred. You can then stand up and require the government to play the other relevant portions of the recording, 
perhaps where your client describes the basis for his good faith belief that there was consent. Now, in that case, because it is also an admission, the fence may choose to wait and put it in and cross, but the important thing is to be aware of the rule and make a strategic call about how you want to use it. Also, keep in mind that the rule applies to any writing or recording. It doesn't have to be your client, although normally it is, or at least it seems to be. So the other thing about the rule is that it limits the remainder of the writing or recording, or another writing or recording, to only those portions that, quote, ought in fairness to be admitted, end of quote. So the question then is, what in fairness ought to be considered? The rule is not intended to be a sword or a shield, but instead a tool that negates the risk of misleading the fact finder when only a portion of a statement is admitted. In other words, it gives an opposing party the opportunity to admit those portions of the statement that provide context so that the fact finder can give the evidence its proper weight. Note that the other portions are admissible even if they would otherwise be inadmissible hearsay. But courts will apply rules 401 and 403. However, so long as the other portions of the statement actually do provide context for the admitted portion of the statement, it should pass the 401 test for relevance. But depending on its content, you may still have to argue that its probative value is not substantially outweighed by any risk of unfair prejudice. Citations to cases limiting evidence offered under the rule of completeness can be found in United States v. Rosales 74 MJ 702 which is an Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals decision from 2015. In practice, you may take these issues up with opposing counsel prior to trial to work it out about what exactly is going to be coming into evidence. Or you might take it up in an Article 39A session. Keep in mind, to the extent that you and the other side disagree on something, getting it on the record in an Article 39A session will force the judge to make a ruling and potentially tee up an appellate issue. So don't allow a disagreement to remain off the record. All right, that's about all I have on the rule of completeness. Thank you for listening, and I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases. Just like you always do Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away And will you please say hello to the friends that I know Happy to know that you saw me go, I was 